Well, friends, I invite you to open up your Bibles to this Old Testament book called Haggai. If you need help finding it, I encourage you to look at your table of contents. And as a Bible teacher, there's no shame in that. So, uh, friends, if you've been with us over the past year, uh, actually you'll know that uh, we have spent an entire year in the New Testament. And I am really excited to get back into the Old Testament. Um, uh, One of my professors, a mentor in college, uh, when he would go and teach on how to preach the Old Testament... Uh, the book of the Bible that he would always zoom to is the book of Haggai. He said this is actually one of the best short books where we, you, we see Christ in the New Testament in this Old Testament book. And um, as we'll, we'll be reading from this passage and looking at the, this book for over the next four weeks, that's my prayer that we'll see the wonderful, wonderful picture of our God. And so I'm going to be reading this morning from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Um, I'm reading from the New International Version. And so, friends, I invite you to follow along with me in your own Bibles, to follow along on the wall behind me, or even within the worship guide. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to through the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains ruined? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in them. To to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give, Give careful thought to your ways. Go up. Into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray for your blessing now as we come and we consider your word. May your spirits work in our hearts because we have this wonderful promise that your word will not return empty. So Father, work in our hearts as we know that your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So Father, help us to be a righteous people. May your spirit work in our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, not the one in New York City, but the one in New Orleans was without a pastor in 2005 until a good friend of mine, Ray Kanata, was called there to be their new pastor. So Ray left his home state of New Jersey. He left his church that was there and he went down to New Orleans. But did you notice the date? 2005. Something else happened that year in New Orleans. It was Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina killed one in 200 people. The city of New Orleans was down to 25% of its pre-storm population. 80% of residential homes were damaged. And when you think about homes and businesses, 50% of them were destroyed. But what about the church? What about the church of Redeemer Presbyterian Church? It was scattered, truly scattered. Only 18 people remained in that city. The church that once was no longer existed. And yet, Ray still moved to New Orleans. But what would be more important, rebuilding one's home or rebuilding the church? If Ray would, hear, would be here, he would say that's a false dichotomy. And, but Ray went down there. And I want to kind of zoom in on the book of Haggai because this, the book of Haggai intersects here. Because when you think about that question of rebuilding one's home or rebuilding the, the church, the message of Haggai is actually all about the presence of God. When we think about the church, the church is all about the presence of God. And as we see throughout all the pages of Scripture, God is actually moving towards the brokenness in the world. As we heard in our call to worship, that we have a God who is for the brokenhearted, who binds up the wounds, their wounds, and heals them. And so within the book of Haggai, God is moving towards the brokenness in the world. Within the historical context of Haggai, and we're going to dig deep in, into the context in a moment, but to let you know where this is happening within the biblical story is that Haggai occurs at the very end of their captivity. It happens at the very end of their exile. It's coming to an end. But the Israelites, even as they're returning to Jerusalem, they are happy and they are content to live without God. That the Israelites prefer God's absence to his presence. And this is a picture of our own hearts. That we believe that we can do just fine without God. That we can thrive, that we can flourish with God's absence. That's actually the lie of secularism. Is that life is better when God is absent. 
And so the point, the idea that I want us to consider this morning is that I want us to think about the call of God's presence. The call of God's presence. And to look within this passage, I want to look at verses 1 and 2. But as I said earlier, here's Israel. They are content. They are happy with God's absence. That's the first point on our outline today. And as we saw in verse 1, but also verse 15, and this keeps up throughout the entire book of Haggai, the prophet is fixated and captivated with dates and details. And so we know exactly when this book takes place. It takes place. The events in this book take place in the year 520 BC. It has been 66 years since the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, displaced the Israelite people, and forcibly relocated them elsewhere in their empire. And it was now, it was a time of exile. But the Babylonians are no longer in, in power. It is the Persians. The Persians are in power, and they, beginning with Cyrus, allowed Israel and other displaced peoples to return to their homeland. And so Persia has allowed that to gradually happen over 20 years. But if you know the biblical stories, not all Israelites returned home to their homeland. Most notably is Mordecai and Esther, seen in that book. And they lived under Darius's grandson's rule. And so when the Israelites first returned to their homeland and they returned to this ruined city of Jerusalem, the people, they go about the business of rebuilding the altar. They laid down the foundation for the temple and then they stopped. And this is what God says. He's discerning the people's attitudes. This is the so in verse 2, we see the people's attitude. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And so the Israelites are reluctant rebuilders. As we see, saw from the rest of the passage, it was a time of drought. It was a time of famine. There was an internal civil war even within the Persian Empire. There was a coup d'etat, and Darius settled that. And now he wanted to go over to Greece and to conquer Greece and add them into his Persian Empire. So he raised taxes. So think about the circumstances of their existence. The Israelites are facing increased taxes, famine, droughts. But no one was saying, we will never build the temple. They were just simply saying, not right now. But the temple within the entire scripture, all the temples like Solomon's, Zerubbabel's, Herod's in the New Testament, and the church, we'll get to that. All of these temples are very significant, that they are signs of God's presence. And even before the temples, it was the tabernacle. And before that, before sin, it was the Garden of Eden, that God was present with Adam and Eve, that they walked with God in the garden. And so the presence of God, the relationship and that intimacy and that familiarity was lost due to sin. In fact, there's this one writer, theologian, he wrote that if, in the, if anyone wanted 
to be in God's presence in the Garden of Eden after the fall, after sin. They would have to pass through the fire and the sword of the cherubim. No man could return to feast in the presence of God unless he first died. How's that for dramatic? So when we think about the temples within the Old Testament and what the Israelites are not rebuilding, they are not rebuilding a sign of God's presence. And so by delaying the construction of the temple, they show that they are content and that they are happy to live in the absence of God. And so for Haggai, what he is pointing out, this is the exact same reason why Israel went into captivity in the first place. To think about that, that's quite startling. And so this relational distance of the absence of God is actually seen in how God addresses the Israelites. If you look at all the other prophets and all the other, and elsewhere in Scripture, you see that God speaks to his people on the basis of the covenants. So you'll see this refrain throughout Scripture, that I will be your God and you will be my people. But Haggai, this is actually what God says in verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. From the NIV, the translation I read, says, these people, I believe in the ESV it says, this people. That God is addressing the Israelites not as my chosen race, a holy priesthood, the apple of my eye, my beloved. He says, this people. This is the difference of a parent saying about their child, that kid, not my kid. Whose child is this? My child. Like, that's the difference. And as Stephen said earlier, that one of the dynamics of sin in our life is that we are orphans. And the gospel is that we are his children. And so we see that the Israelites are content to live with God's absence. And so this is a picture of God's grace because God's grace now comes to God's people through his holy word seeking to grab their attention. And so the second point of our outline is that we would consider our ways, that we would consider our priorities. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruins? Now perhaps this picture of paneled house has this picture of having wood paneled walls. I want to acknowledge that wood paneled walls it requires a certain taste. In our first home, we had a, a like living room, TV room that had wood paneling and it was the first thing to go. And I, I highlight this because actually in the Hebrew, you would, this word would grab your attention. You should notice this word paneled. It is an unusual word in the the Hebrew. In fact, this word is only used in other places to describe one other object. And that one other object that this word paneled is used to describe is the temple of Solomon's temple. The picture that the Haggai wants us to have by using this particular word is that we see that the Israelites are putting the same care and the same craftsmanship into their own homes that was reflected in in Solomon's 
temple. So imagine with me that the Israelites would go out and hire Frank Lloyd Wright. I hope you know who he is. He's one of the most famous architects, uh, American architects in recent history. But imagine hiring him as your architect to design this temple. But but once it's destroyed, you go around and hire him to build your own homes. And so what Haggai wants us to see is that there is a hypocrisy. There is an inconsistency in Israel's circumstantial wisdom. They are not rebuilding the temple due to the famine, the drought, or increased temples taxes, they are not rebuilding the temple because it's not even a priority for them. That their priorities reveal that they are happy to live without God's presence. They are happy. They are content with God being absent. And friends, this is a common problem in our own lives. We do this too, especially in times of difficulty. It's easy to withdraw from the church is easy to withdraw from our from ser- from serving God it, it's easy to withdraw claiming that we need resources for ourselves to care for ourselves that we need that mental energy that time those resources our bandwidth to meet our needs and to care for those around us so in other words life's difficulties become an excuse for us to center our lives on ourselves that we take God's good gifts that he gives to to us that he that we use these resources we and we hold on to them in fact we Hoard. We have developed this hoarding mindset. And so the, one of the questions that Haggai wants you to consider this morning is, how are you doing that? How are you rearranging your life to center on yourselves? This is what Haggai is after, that he wants you to consider your ways. He repeats this. He emphasizes this through repetition. And so he goes on to even highlight the consequences of living with an absent God or to be living with, he points out the consequences of pursuing and being happy with God's absence. And so he goes on and he gives some examples. This is verse 5, 6, and 7. He says, but he's asking the questions, do you thrive and do you flourish without God? It's like you plant much, but you harvest little. That you eat, but you are never full. That you drink, but you are never satisfied. That you are working for a living, and you you have no savings. And so one writer, Mark Sayers, he writes this, that their constant companion was no longer God's presence, but instead shame, anxiety, and isolation. And, and human beings, that when we are cut off from God's presence, we mutate into something monstrous. A force that resists the expansion of God's presence out into the world. This is what Haggai is pointing out, is that with God you cannot thrive, that you cannot flourish. That shame, anxiety, isolation, these are the things that will be your constant companions without God being present in your life. And so Haggai is asking again, consider your ways. Where are your priorities? And I want to highlight that while Haggai is being very 
firm and straightforward with God's people, there's grace in this. That God's word comes to his people to see what even happens. That they are convicted of their sin. They confess and they repent. Their hearts, as you go on into the verses 12 and 13, 14, 15, we see that their hearts are full of the fear of the Lord and they are stirred to action. And then look at this in verse 13, that God gives them this wonderful promise that I will, that I am with you. And so before we move ahead into our next point, our third thing to consider, where we consider the promise of God's presence, a caution is necessary at this point too because we need to make sure that we actually understand what Haggai is saying because at this point, it would be easy to hear moralism. And moralism would say that you should examine your ways, get on with God's plan, and he will bless you. That's classic moralism where you have this mindset of I obey God, therefore he will bless me. But Haggai is not interested in whether or not your income or the people's income turns into their retirements. His focus is on the presence of God. He's asking questions like, are you hungering for the presence of God? Are you seeking to see his glory cover the earth as the oceans, as the water covered the oceans? Are the people going to embrace their identity as a holy priesthood? And he wants you to know that if you are pursuing the presence of God in your life, for the Israelites, that means you're going to be rebuilding the temple. That is going to be a sign that you are pursuing God's presence. And so we need to think, realize that there's even a difference. That within the biblical story, when you look at the Old Testament, while there is a massive unity all throughout the pages of Scripture, that as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, every story whispers his name. When Jesus taught in Luke 24, 27, that he began with the prophets and the writing, how, all the things concerning himself. That Jesus, in a conversation with the Pharisees, he says, Aren't you, don't you guys know your Bibles? They're all about me. So when we think about scripture, there's a lot of unity. But one of the elements of disunity actually has to deal with this idea of God's presence. And we want to see how God is present with us today. And this is the third thing to think about, the promise of presence. How do we know that God is with us? So when the Old Testament, you have the tabernacles, are there, they are a sign of God's presence. And the temples, you have the temples being a sign of God's presence. They are pointing us to a greater reality. And in the, in the New Testament, the New Testament makes this actually very clear how Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacles and of the tabernacle, the temples. Here's John 1, 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle, that the word made flesh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that Jesus, in another conversation with the Pharisees, just as John 2, 19, that he said that he would destroy this temple, and in three days he would rise again. And then even and later he actually rejects and he condemns the temple-centered worship of 
the Old Testament by going into the, te- the temple. He sees how the Jewish religious leaders made it a den of robbers and he flipped over tables. He s- cleansed it and he purified it. And so, friends, that we know that God is with us and that he is present with us because of Jesus. One of the names of Jesus from Isaiah is that he is Emmanuel, that God, he is God with us. I believe it was Athanasius who said that he became what we are so that we would become what he is. He's paraphrasing the Apostle Paul there. And so Jesus came to work salvation in our hearts. That we know that God is present in our lives through Jesus Christ and his work in this world. That because of Jesus, we can say that God is with us. So this promise that Haggai gives to the people of Israel here in 113, where where God says, I am with you. The only way that we can hold on to that promise is through Jesus Christ. And it's all because of the incarnation. That God is with us. And so to continue with Jesus for a moment, that while Jesus is no longer physically walking around the world today, Jesus ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father where he is ruling over all things. But he's also doing something else for you. Right there at the right hand of God. That he is interceding to God the Father on your behalf. In other words, he is the one who is actually ushering you into the presence of God. But he doesn't just do that. Even as he he ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father, he has given you a helper, a comforter, an advocate in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it is because of Jesus that you are not this people, but you are God's people. That because of Jesus, you are not the enemy of God, you are the friend of God. Can we just think about that for a moment? You are not the enemy of God, you are a friend of God. That God looks at you and you are his beloved child and he delights in you. And he has given you the Holy Spirit. And so all of this, Jesus' incarnation, his ascension, and and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all of this led the Apostle Paul to ask this question in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? Now, friends, you are a temple of God. You are no longer strangers, but you are brothers and sisters. You are not enemies with God, but his children. That you are fellow citizens with all the apostles and the prophets, and that you are being joined together by the power of the Holy Spirit, where Christ is your cornerstone, where you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just paraphrased Ephesians 2. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each and every single one of you are here this morning as individuals. And so it's true in in an individual sense. This is perhaps where some southern grammar of you and y'all would be helpful. Perhaps from Pittsburgh, it's you and yins. Sorry. The reality is that every single one of you are a part. You are an individual stone of the temple of God. You are individual stones in the temple of God. 
And so here in Haggai, uh, Haggai is saying, like, go up to, go gather lumber. Let's get rebuilding this temple. And I'm reading this book by Paul Miller, A Praying Church, and he says that Christians are saint lumber, to drive this point home. That we as individuals are the lumber that God uses to build his temple. But the vision of the temple is that it is a people, a community. It is y'all. Y'all are the Lord's temple. And so the question that Haggai is bringing back to us is that are you striving to build the Lord's house? Are you striving to build the Lord's house? And so when you think about God's house, of God's temple in the world, it is the church. And it's made up of people from different social, economic backgrounds, race, genders, ethnicities, all united in Christ. And so it's the church that is where we experience God's presence and his blessing. It is actually in the church that we experience God's blessing and his presence. So there is a, an incredible picture in Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 14, 26. And we see that there is actually, a, a, in this passage, a non-Christian comes to worship. And they experience God's presence for the first time. That the secrets of their hearts are laid bare and they fall down in fear and worship and they exclaim, God is certainly among you. Think about that for a moment. The church is the temple of God. The church is the presence of God in the world. Do you experience that? Do you take joy in that? So building the Lord's house is actually beyond every single one of us. That none of us can change other people's behavior. None of us can bring about true conviction of sin that leads to repentance. That we cannot open the eyes of the blind. That we cannot even prove, we cannot prove the gospel. Only the Spirit can bring dead men and dead women back to life. Only the Spirit can do these things. And so when we think about building the Lord's house, that's what that means is that this is actually about God's work in our lives and also in our lives together as the people of God. And it is completely beyond us. That we don't have the energy for that. Let's be honest. It's completely beyond us. And that is part of the point. That even when Jesus came into the temple and he flipped over those tables and he called the temple a den of robbers, he says this, that the zeal, that your zeal for the Lord's house will consume me. It takes a zeal, it takes a passion that is completely outside of us. And it's, if you want the presence of God in your life, it's God that brings you, it's Jesus that brings you that presence by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So while this may seem like a side note, it's not. Scholars on revivals, awakenings, and renewal movements highlight that revivals always begin with a hunger for the presence of God. The main way for you to know and experience the presence of God is through prayer. Is through prayer. So Paul Miller says that in his book, A Praying Church, Paul Miller says that the American church killed the prayer meeting because we're too busy to gather to pray. 
everything that matters in our life, everything that actually matters in ministry is completely out of our control. But it's actually within God's control and it's actually within God's power to do And so this is actually a a call, friends, to pray, to lean on to the Holy Spirit, to look to Jesus and enjoy the presence of God for one simple reason, that, dear church, you are the presence of God. You are the temple that God lives and dwells within you. If I can go back to where I started in the introduction with my friend Ray, he moved He moved to New Orleans because if no one went to rebuild the church, what would be missing? If no one moved to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, what would be missing? The answer to that question from the book of Haggai is that the presence of God would be missing amidst one of the biggest events of destruction and catastrophe and brokenness within people's lives. That what we'd be missing is the presence of God again amidst human suffering. So friends, let's pray for the courage and the boldness and the power to be the presence of God in our lives in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we want to say thank you for this good word. That here we have this incredible word and it's a comfort, it is encouragement that we are your people, that we are, that you are with us. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see the brokenness in our, in our lives, that we would see the sin and the suffering that is all around us, that you would give us the eyes to also see how you are working and moving in our life as well. And, Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of prayer that you would give us this desire to come before you and to lean on you, to depend upon you, that we would seek your spirits, that we would look to Jesus as our king. So, Father, we pray for your help to do this in the coming days and weeks ahead. In Christ's name I pray.